Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. On the show this week, the West is in the midst of an unprecedented drought. Lake Mead on the Colorado River is at just 36% of capacity, and the Bureau of Reclamation is expected to call an official water shortage in August. Across the West, 91% of the region is at some level of drought right now. More than half, 55%, is under extreme or exceptional drought, the most severe ratings. That is the largest area under those classifications in the 21 years that the U.S. Drought Monitor Program has been active. So today, we've got two interviews about water in the West focused on Arizona. We'll be talking to the chairwoman of the Colorado River Indian Tribes, which straddle the Arizona and California sides of the river. And we have the policy director of Audubon Southwest with a look at how we conserve water and whether that is enough when agriculture uses most of the water in states like Arizona. But first, a little news. We are expecting a report from the Interior Department and the White House in the next few weeks looking at the oil and gas leasing system on America's public lands. At the same time, members of Congress are pushing their own fixes. Several bills are making their way through the House and Senate right now that would address a system that is both outdated and outright broken in many ways. We could and probably will spend an entire episode getting into exactly what these bills would do and how they'd do it, but I will just mention the most recent of them, which was introduced by Colorado Senator Michael Bennett last week. That bill would provide funding to clean up thousands of abandoned oil wells across the West and address the underlying problem, which is that the bonds that oil and gas companies have to post in order to drill on public lands aren't nearly large enough to cover the costs of cleaning up when oil and gas companies go bankrupt and leave messes behind. Of all the oil and gas reform bills before Congress right now, Senator Bennett's bills are the most comprehensive in our read. I would not be surprised to see similar recommendations coming out of that Interior Department report, along with a roadmap for policy changes under existing law, which do already give the Interior Secretary wide latitude in how she chooses to run the oil and gas leasing program. And speaking of the Secretary, Deb Holland is having quite a month. She's on the cover of the August issue of InStyle magazine with a portrait that I can only describe as powerful. The article itself points out that Holland has brought in an incredibly diverse team into the department with her. 50% of her political appointees are people of color, 70% are women, and that commitment to diversity was on display from the roof earlier this month, which is, of course, Pride Month. Secretary Holland personally went up to raise the Progress Pride flag over Interior Department headquarters. That's the flag that added a five-colored chevron to the traditional rainbow pride flag. The chevron represents the inclusion of LGBTQ communities of color and the transgender community. The photo itself is remarkable enough, but even more so when you think about how, during the Trump administration, Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke insisted on having someone raise the secretary's personal flag every time he was in the building. Obviously, flags are just symbols. They don't by themselves change anything. They don't do anything other than wave in the wind. But flags represent something. And having a secretary who personally raises a flag of inclusion instead of having staff raise a flag that is only about the secretary's ego... Well, that represents an incredible change for our public lands in just a few years, and that is something we can all truly be proud of 
this Pride Month. I have a feeling the worsening drought across the West is a topic we will be returning to throughout the summer as the water levels in Lake Mead and Lake Powell continue to drop to historic lows and extreme heat continues to dry out the landscape and crops even further. Haley Paul is here with us to discuss why this matters for the millions of people who rely on the Colorado River for their drinking water and their livelihoods. She is the policy director with Audubon Southwest, where she works with stakeholders and decision makers to advance policies that are good for people and for birds, of course, because this is Audubon. She previously worked for the town of Gilbert, Arizona, where she led the town's water conservation team. She has a master's in sustainability from Arizona State University, and she lives in Phoenix. So, Haley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a very basic question. How bad is the water situation in Arizona right now? That is a fantastic question. And I had the realization of how bad things were when I was listening to the state legislature's special session and they were getting a, uh, a talk from the state forester, the lead of like our forestry division. And he said, or our fi- and our firefighter division. And he said, you know, it's so dry out there. They're having a hard time finding enough water in the reservoirs to scoop it up to fight the fires. Wow. So that to me was like the double whammy of the water and the fire connection in a way I honestly hadn't thought about before. So little water, you can't dump it on the fires that are burning. Wow. Yeah. Take a step back with us and give us the rundown of where Arizona's water comes from and how much of it goes to cities versus agricultural or industrial uses. Sure. Yeah. Just a statewide level kind of snapshot. We get in Arizona, we get 40% of our water from the Colorado River. We get about 40% of our water from groundwater. And then the rest, 20% comes from in-state rivers like the, the Gila and the Salt. And also there's um, a, a slice of uh, effluent or reclaimed water, which is used in uh, various sectors. And what about fish, birds, wildlife that depend on the Colorado River? What is left for them after all of right. that? Right, right. Yeah, flowing rivers are important not only for cities and agriculture so that water can get to the right spots, but obviously we know that habitat and um, the dogs are barking. Uh, We know that habitat and the birds benefit from flowing rivers and sustaining that habitat as well. Let's talk about hydropower very briefly. What does this drought and the water levels mean potentially for electricity generation across the, the West? Yeah, for sure. The the falling water levels at Lake Mead, uh, definitely it's a double whammy with energy production as well as obviously water supply. And part of the drought contingency plan that was passed in 2019, part of its goal was to prevent such catastrophic water level declines so that we wouldn't have a huge impact to hydropower. Obviously, there's still going to be some impact as water levels decline and we have to be careful about how we release water and when. But I think that is something to note that we have put in, you know, though it's dire out there, we have put in some plans in place that help to preserve those those ground those those water levels at Lake Mead. So hopefully they don't get catastrophically low. So we don't reach terms like what they call Deadpool, where they cannot release water out of the river, out of the lake. How how close are we potentially to that? And how close are we to a situation where states cannot get will not get the water that they have been promised under these various water accords? At what point does this get really dire? 
Yeah, I think right now it's definitely concerning and uh, we are watching it. I would not call it a crisis yet in that we've we we have at least planned this far uh, for this situation. So, for instance, August, we will likely see the first ever shortage declaration at Lake Mead. And what that means for Arizona, for example, is that the drought contingency plan really kicks in, in that central Arizona farmers in Pinal County are gonna take a cut. They are not gonna receive the Colorado River water that they've been used to. They will have to go back to groundwater. The cities won't be affected at that point. However, if we get two back-to-back years, like the one we've had this year, and then we get it again in 2022, that's where people are starting to talk like, okay, what will we need to do to even act more aggressively to protect water levels at Lake Mead. And I suppose that gets back to where the water goes. I, just, I, I grew up in Tucson. We had the the Beat the Peak Water Conservation Ad campaign, uh, encouraging everyone to only water every other day, to not water in the late afternoon where it, when it evaporates right away. But at the end of the day, personal conservation, municipal conservation can only go so far when 72% of the state's water use is agricultural. Um, are we, do you think, heading to a point where we have to restructure the system as we know it, or can we conserve our way through this if the drought we're seeing this year is the new normal and continues into next year? Right, right. Yeah, twenty. You know, around 20% of Arizona's water use goes to the municipal sector, and obviously the overwhelming amount goes to agriculture. Now, of course, we need food to eat and fiber to grow and all of that. And so agriculture is essential to our economy, but recognizing that it is a large water user, I think given our situation, uh, I think we're going to just need and continue to see innovative deals innovative thinking about how agriculture can be a partner in all of this, because at the end of the day, we are all in this together. And just like in the whole Colorado River Basin, you know, if one state is not doing well, then it could affect everyone. And so I think we're going to have to think creatively about how do we make deals to encourage sharing, uh, you know, um, temporary following, what kinds of things can we do to work with the agriculture industry to be adaptive when we have those really bad years. I think a lot of folks don't necessarily think of Arizona as a big agricultural producer. What kind of stuff is grown in Arizona and how could that change if the amount of water available to agricultural uses changes? Yeah, yeah. I'll speak for the central part of the state first. And in Pinal County and central part of Arizona, we grow a lot of alfalfa, believe it or not. And I know alfalfa often gets a bad rap because it does use a lot of water. However, it um, is a very productive crop and it feeds the local dairy cows that then is supplied to the local large metropolitan areas. And so to think that dairy and and alfalfa is going to completely go away is probably not realistic because there's such a large population of people that need that uh, milk and dairy products. Um, On the Colorado River itself in Arizona, we see a lot of vegetable production like in Yuma, and it's highly efficient, highly, you know, specialized uh, vegetable uh, operations. And so we we have very diverse agriculture in Arizona. And even though it's hot, uh, just add water. And it is amazing what we can grow in the desert. So talk to us about the work you do with these stakeholders, getting folks to the table, agreeing, we're going to go fallow this year. We're going to change up the Mm -hmm. crops we grow. 
What does that that process look like as the the sausage or the the dairy cows are getting made? Yeah, yeah. Well, this past legislative, well, it's currently going on still. The current legislative session this year, twenty twenty one. Early in the session, around February, we got a really great win where conservationists, agriculture came together and passed what was called uh, HB 2056. And basically, it rewrites Arizona water law, which in and of itself is an amazing accomplishment, uh, to encourage conservation. So basically, before, farmers, landowners were kind of discouraged from conserving water because of uh, Western water law, you use, use it or lose it. it. Yeah. Right. So this law says, hey, landowner, if you file a water conservation plan with the Department of Water Resources, let us know what you're planning to do. You know, diverting less water from the Verde River, let's say, because you've switched to barley and you're using less water, you will be you will be protected from losing those water rights in the future. So we were really encouraged that that got through the legislature, really bipartisan support. Uh, and encourages conservation, leaves more water in rivers, we think will benefit birds, will benefit rivers, and will benefit people because they don't feel pressured to like use more water than they need. And we're, you know, adapting our water law for the times. It, I, I, th- I think that's a really good um, success story that we need to be proud of. And then no, we have lots more work to do. You mentioned the possibility that some of these agricultural users will have to go from using Colorado River water back to groundwater, potentially. I know that was part of your your academic studies, focusing on on groundwater management policies. Uh, from, uh, from my time growing up in Tucson, it was a very big deal when Tucson brought in the Central Arizona Project and, and the Colorado River water started being added to the groundwater supply because the city of Tucson was literally sinking. Uh, what does groundwater management look like in this time of drought potentially? And do you worry that as there is less water in the Colorado, there becomes more uh, more pressure on these groundwater supplies? And what happens if the water table keeps dropping? Absolutely. Groundwater, I think, is the hidden, uh, you know, reservoir underground. And so because we can't see it, I think sometimes it's it's hard to visualize just what an impact it has when we use more than is naturally or artificially replenished. Uh, so I'll start with saying that the outside of the central populous part of the state in Arizona, there are no protections or regulations on the use of groundwater. Whoever drills the deepest well wins. We think that's problematic. We think it's problematic for rivers because in Arizona, if you have a year round flowing river or stream, it is relying on groundwater for that base flow. If we deplete groundwater, we're depleting our rivers. But then also obviously for communities, uh, the city of Kingman, for example, in Mojave County in the uh, northwest part of the state is very concerned that they only have, according to one study, 60 years of water left. Uh, They need tools to manage their groundwater. Uh, So that's one thing that we think needs to happen. And some of those tools can include uh, well spacing. Uh, uh, You can't drill a well next to someone if it's going to disproportionately impact an existing well. So that's kind of like protecting those that are already in place. Uh, You could do offsets. So if you want to drill a well, you got to find a way to offset some of that use by, by, um, you know, getting uh, less groundwater use elsewhere. So there's just a couple examples. We have lots of uh, resources on our Water for Arizona Coalition website for more resources on how we can conserve groundwater. But certainly we think that that local communities should have those tools. In Pinal County in central Arizona, it's a little different situation because the rules themselves are such that everyone's kind of agreed within that active management area, 
it's planned depletion. So yeah. farmers knew that when Colorado River water went away, they'd go back to groundwater. That's causing problems though, because right now in Pinal County, they don't have enough water to keep issuing new water permits, uh, growth permits. And so it's happening now, like we're, we're seeing it, the issues happening now. And so I do think, and there is a conversation happening at the state level, like how do we ad adapt our 40 year old groundwater management act, which was great at the time, but it needs some work and making sure that we're not resting on that and that we know that groundwater, especially given the pressures on the Colorado River, groundwater is going to be seen as a resource and we need to make sure that we're protecting it. I, I should probably note here for folks not familiar with the geography of, of Arizona, Pinal County is sandwich, sandwiched between Phoenix and Tucson. So you've got Phoenix growing southward, Tucson growing northward. Casa Grande in the middle, and I'd imagine that the the population there is also growing as a result, uh, as as that that Southern Arizona kind of grows into a megalopolis. Mm -hmm. um, what is that changing landscape looking like as it goes from a very rural county into uh, an exurb for Phoenix and Tucson? Yeah, it's it's growing, <laughs> and it's it's in the it's in the bullseye of, of what you just described, where Phoenix is kind of going south and Tucson's coming north. And I think, you know, agriculture is always going to be important in Pinal County. There's lots of stats about how important Pinal County agriculture is. But as agriculture retires, do we have an opportunity to grow on former agricultural land so that maybe there's not as much of a net increase in the water use? Like if we can develop more where there has already been water use as opposed to initiating new uses in desert type out outer areas maybe that's one potential solution and i know that's been talked about a lot um, in some of those water circles i was talking about earlier you briefly mentioned reclaimed water which is right now only five percent of the state's usage i assume we're talking about like golf courses car washes things like that as cities grow is there is there potential for more uses of gray water, of reclaimed water? Should we be building out more gray water infrastructure as like new new subdivisions come online? Should we be flushing toilets with reclaimed water? Should we be watering lawns with reclaimed water? And and what does that look like? Because obviously there's there's a, an infrastructure expense there in building that out. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point and a great uh, question because um, this is actually already happening. So I'm thinking of my experience at the town of Gilbert, and they have in their city infrastructure. You have a potable water line, which is you know think of it as like regular drinking water, and you know underground you have another line, which is a reclaimed water line. And so right now, places like the town of Gilbert and other municipalities in the Phoenix area and Tucson as well they are reusing all of their wastewater. They are reusing it all, they're cleaning it up, they're purifying it, and they are putting it back on like golf courses or HOA landscapes, so large landscapes, mm -hmm. where you kind of have one central place that you can use the water. The, the piping to individual homes presents its own interesting issues in that you don't want to get accidentally homer homeowners tapping into the reclaimed water line. So I think sure. cities are a little hesitant to do direct delivery to homes but they are certainly interested and do already do direct delivery of reclaimed water to large landscapes, cemeteries, golf courses, things like that. And I think, um, and there's also innovative um, things happening in, in the city of Phoenix and, uh, and five other big cities. They deliver all their water to one wastewater treatment plant 
And then that goes to the Palo Verde Nuclear Generating Station to cool the uh, generating station, as well as to agriculture in the Buckeye Irrigation District. So in terms of reclaimed water, I'd say that Arizona is doing great. I think what would be interesting to learn more and, and research more is in the rural parts of the state where maybe there's a lot of septic. Mm -hmm. Could you retrofit? How expensive would that be? But like basically capture that water that homes are instead sending to septic, instead send it to a wastewater treatment plant so that you can capture it and reuse it. M moving away from septic in some of the rural areas, building out some more infrastructure for capturing that. Exactly. So that sounds overall quite progressive and quite responsible in terms of gray water use. How does Arizona, which is one of seven states that relies on the Colorado River, how does Arizona compare to its peer states in terms of water use, water conservation, and are there some of those same use it or lose it pressures that you were talking about? Is there some of that on the state level when you talk about states having to argue as this drought uh, continues? Yeah, good question. I think for Arizona, we have been utilizing our Colorado River water in an, you know, if I'm an upper basin state, I don't know if I think the same way, but I'm Arizona person. So I'll, I'll say it in this way, sure. but you know, we take the Colorado River water and cities often put it underground. So they are banking it for the future. They're replenishing groundwater levels now in case they need it in the future. Uh, you could see that as pretty innovative uh, because it's maximizing the use of supplies. Um, you know, I think it's, it's kind of, um, it's important to to recognize I was, uh, you know, you saw a lot of news about Las Vegas banning turf, mm -hmm. uh, non-functional turf. And I, that's great. Uh, but I'll also note that Arizona was making sure that they weren't putting turf in right of ways since the 80s. So the mm -hmm. Groundwater Management Act has been kind of it's almost a little old now in that people are like, you know, yeah, that's old. Yeah, we've been doing that for 30 years. Exactly. Sure. <laughs> and so, of course, there's always more we can be doing uh, coming from the conservation world. We saw lots of water waste, a lot of it because people just didn't realize that they didn't need to use all that water on the landscape or on the cooling towers or whatever it may be. Uh, but yeah, I think there's always room for more. I don't know if we can just conserve our way out of this. I think we're going to have to think big, think innovative. How do we restructure certain things so that we're not just, um, you know, doing the same old thing? Uh, I want to ask about both the Trump administration and the Biden administration, particularly as it relates to water. Um, we saw the border wall have some horrific impacts, particularly along the San Pedro, uh, along Quito Paquito Springs, uh, and uh, along the, the wildlife refuge there. How much work is underway, as far as you know, to reverse that damage? How much of that damage is permanent? And how does how does the drought uh, play into uh, the, the potential long-term damage that the border wall caused? Yeah, I know there's a lot of great environmental and NGO groups working on this issue very specifically. Sure. I saw somebody was raising money to help with Quito Piquito Springs mm -hmm. and trying to restore it. Um, and I think it just shows you how connected groundwater and groundwater dependent ecosystems are, right? So it's this like immediate response when we pump the heck out of the groundwater in a local area and, and the environment is affected. Obviously, the sacred sites that the wall blew through and the mountaintops that have been desecrated, like those aren't going to ever be what they were. Uh, and then I'll be interested to see, like with the San Pedro, you know, it's a flashy 
monsoon driven system. So will what has been constructed or if they take it away, you know, how does that play? You're trying to date, you're trying to put a border wall on a river. And that just is like the antithesis of like, what can, you know, nature, I think we'll find a way to figure that one out and blow that up, but we'll see. (laughs) And then looking at the, the Biden administration, there's the big proposal on the table through the America beautiful plan to protect 30% of America's land and waters by, by the end of the decade. What does that potentially mean for freshwater conservation, particularly in the Southwest where places like the San Pedro are at risk, but protected at least in some spots? Do you think there's the potential for more protections uh, towards that 30 by 30 goal uh, when it comes to water in Arizona? Yeah, Arizona's has a lot of federal land as well as Native American tribal land. And so I know, you know, some of the local officials or local folks at the state legislature aren't super excited about more land coming under some sort of permanent protection. But what I do think is that Arizona, because we already have so much protected land, this is a really cool opportunity, perhaps, to really invest in the land that we do have. Um, I'm thinking of forest health and restoration and how essential these forests are to both our water and our communities and to thin them out, to properly treat them so that they're not so overcrowded with dense ponderosa pine, for example. I wonder if that can be part of the conversation, the stewardship of our public lands, of the lands that we are protecting, not just protecting them, but then maintaining them in the long haul. I think there's plenty of work to do there and Arizona is right for that. We've been talking about use it or lose it, first in, first out, this historic precedent of water use that the the white folks imposed when they showed up. Obviously, that was uh, a, a new invention within the, the last 150 years or so. Um, if you could wave a magic wand, reset the the way we use water across the West and across the country. What would your what would be in your magic wand going forward? I think in my magic wand we would develop a system that is not driven by use so much. Mm-hmm. Right? We we set up a system, white settlers set up a system of essentially exploitation, though, you know, they didn't bill it as that when they started it, but to take out, right? To take out water from rivers so that you could do mining operations, so that you could do agricultural operations, to, so you could grow cities. But then you realize that like the water in the river itself has value uh, and things rely on it in addition to people. And perhaps we could develop a system where, for instance, uh, my colleague, Jocelyn Gibbon said this on a podcast, and I thought it was a really interesting way of thinking about it, where we can say, okay, no more. Mm-hmm. No more can be taken out of this river. Like there's no more rights to be handed out because it's already overallocated. <laughs> and we're kind of doing that on the Colorado River, kind of. But in state rivers, you know, pretty much you might be low in line, but you could still apply for a use and try to have it. Now, and not really for groundwater at all. Right. And not for groundwater. You can just keep pumping as long as your well can bring up water. So, yeah, to to impose reasonable uh, limitations so that we can protect what we have and steward that resource seems like it would be a nice thing to wave a magic wand to. What's keeping you up at night in terms of water challenges and climate challenges right now? Um, things are a little bit uh 
newly visceral for me in that, uh, you know, Flagstaff's had some fires near it recently and I'm moving my family from Phoenix to Flagstaff. And the, mm-hmm. the day we were going to move all our stuff literally up the 17 from Phoenix, you know, evac orders of set are, you know, put over the, the social media. And it's just like this really realization that climate change is here. It's impacting us now. And what keeps me up is that we still aren't taking decisive action. Uh, things at the legislature this year, for example, we're trying to actively gut the ability for the Corporation Commission to set carbon limits, mm. limits or carbon goals, mm. carbon reduction goals. Uh, I, I just worry uh, that we're not acknowledging the root cause of the problems we're seeing. Mm. The special session that they just held to allocate $100 million for wildfires uh, at the state legislature. You know, still that debate is climate change real is is raging. And it's just that wow. that's what keeps mm. me up is that we still don't agree on the baseline. And I guess maybe as long as we're dedicating resources to it, it, it it's OK. But it seems like to get at the root causes, we'd want to we'd want to address with some policy you know, on a bigger level. Let me close by asking you about your origin story as a conservation advocate. How did you get drawn to this path? At what point did you realize you have this connection to the land or water that, that you need, uh, that you need to work on as, as part of, of what you do in life? Well, like many things in life, it started with food. Mm. I was a a student athlete at Washington State University. I grew up in Arizona, wanted to get away from that hot heat, went to Pullman, Washington and uh, ran for the cross country team and track team. And, you know, realized that what I put into my body is really important to have maximum athletic performance. So got involved with the local uh, student farm there, Um, did the local food thing, sustainable ag wanted to come back home for grad school and then realized that you can't study agriculture in Arizona without studying water. Sure. And so that's what really led me to water is realizing that there's so much tied up in how we manage it, how we protect it. Um, and then always had a heart for the environment. My husband's a biologist. And so, yeah, I had the opportunity to come to Audubon and um, work for the birds on water policy and thought that was a pretty cool opportunity. All right. Haley Paul with Audubon Southwest. Thank you so much. This has been really uh, very insightful. Appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. So how is this drought playing out along the Colorado River itself? The Colorado River Indian tribes include four distinct tribes representing about 4,500 tribal members across 300,000 acres along the California and Arizona sides of the Colorado River. Amelia Flores is the newly elected chairwoman of the Colorado River Indian Tribes, and she joins us now. Chairwoman Flores, thank you so much for joining us today. I understand that you are the first woman who's been elected chair of the Colorado River Indian Tribes. So before we dive into the drought and the heat, tell us a little bit about yourself and your role uh, as, as chairwoman. Well, thank you, Aaron. Thank you so much for for this opportunity to uh, be on this podcast and uh, talk about Colorado Indian tribes. The reservation was formed in 1865. However, we did not have a tribal council. We we, uh, depended on our chiefs and also the uh, local uh, government uh, agency uh, after our last chief died. And then in 1937, 34, 37 is when we... um, formed a, a tribal council over those years. We've had uh, women uh, serving on the council, 
However, no one has served as our uh, a chairperson. So I'm deeply, deeply honored to be in this role. And um, I carry on my shoulders the, the whole tribes uh, on my shoulder every day. And, and uh, you know, even when I go home and, and my cons- uh, the concerns and, and keeping this, uh, this government running. I'm curious about the drought and the current situation on the Colorado River from your perspective, uh, leading the tribes that are, are dependent on the river. Well, the current drought, you know, it, it, it's here and, and, you know, we, we've seen it, uh, uh, over the years, um, and, and hear about it. You know, we've had hot summers, we've had, uh, milder summers, but, uh, the impact on, on crit, we, we as Mojave people have lived along the river, um, in time and memorial. So we know how to adapt. We've become resilient to, the weather pattern, the changes in, in our climate. And so we will continue to do this and, and stay on, on the river. And as the first people of the, uh, of, uh, along the Colorado River, um, we have the largest and um, earliest priority water rights. So when it comes to shortages, we will be the, uh, the last um, uh, entity to, to be cut if, if it comes to that. And, and we're hoping and praying that that won't happen but that's where we sit at uh, right now. And so what we're doing, we're helping the state of Arizona. Of course, I'll go into that later on, but for us on our reservation and as a tribe and as a government, you know, we're looking at increasing the efficiency of our irrigation project that is run by the uh, local government here. We're putting in grants. We have a, a, a water resource department. They um, oversee uh, the irrigation and, and uh, the canals, uh, they assist with the uh, SCADA system uh, that was run by the government. We get grant funding for that. We just recently, uh, in collaboration with uh, other uh, entities in Arizona, we just did a pilot project. It's called the NDRIP uh, Irrigation Pilot uh, Program that was implemented on our, our farmlands, and that was a success uh, not only success of uh, conserving water for, for, for crit, but also for those other entities and for uh, other tribes and, and uh, water users in the state of Arizona and, and uh, nationwide also. I want to ask about that partnership uh, with, with the state of Arizona and how do you view your role as the original stewards of the land, as the original stewards of the river, uh, how do you view the tribe's role in, as you have so many loud voices clamoring around the drought and around the shortages that others may face, uh, what do you think your role is at the table there? Well, I think our role is very important. It's very important. Like I, like I said before, you know, we're, we're one of the five tribes on, on the uh, lower basin and, and we hold the, uh, the uh, largest uh, and oldest water rights. And so, uh, and we, and like I said, we would be the last to, um, to be cut of our water on, on the river. So we, we are extremely important. And I, I'm so thankful for our past leaderships that, you know, um, that got us to where we're at today. And, and that even at the state level and this, those leaders may have not thought we were important as a, as a, a key player 
but there were those that have the had the insight then that said, yeah, you know, we need them. We need uh, a crit to be part of this uh, DCP program. I want to ask about the the ways that you're working with the Biden administration, the the new leadership at the Interior Department. You're, I know we mentioned the irrigation project working with with BIA, but just how does that uh, how does that relationship work? And have you noticed a change yet with with Deb Holland as the first uh, Indigenous Interior Secretary versus uh, versus how things were under under the Trump administration? Well, for one thing, I know we have applied for grants conserving our our our, our water, so. But I don't, I don't know if, the, if Biden had a part in that. I want to say that, he, you know, in, in his leadership and his administration, that um, those uh, fundings uh, we applied for, we received, I believe, three grants right now, and we were we have applied for another to do conservation. Um, and, and as you said be, before, you know, as um, Colorado River Indian tribes, we are stewards uh, of the river. And our, our people, our ancestors have always been conserving as much as they can also. And, and so we value the habitat just like our ancestors did because the animals and the fish all play a part in, 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 in our lives. But we have set aside land uh, for to preserve um, the habitat. We have the Ahakab Preserve and um, we have the Achi uh, Hanyo fishery hatchery that's on our land also we have uh have have had habitat for endangered bird species that are on the uh both sides of the river that is what you know what that is what we we as stewards have been doing and as we're hopeful that biden will uh in his administration continue with funding for irrigation for repairing our irrigation for making uh, our water uh, more, uh, well, making the irrigation system more efficient. As the first uh, chairwoman of the, of the Colorado River Indian tribes, you know, we, women, we play, a, we, we play an important role in uh, any uh, of our, our tribal uh, societies. And I think with Deb Holland um, in her historic confirmation, you know, it just goes to prove that that we are important. You know, um, I know with the um, with BIA, it's always been this um, building uh, on the, the grounds, and it's kind of been a sacred building. But it's not uh, with her um, in the leadership. I don't think uh, I view it, and I think other people don't view it uh, as the uh, Interior Department of Interior as an institution. And with her um, uh, nomination and confirmation, I think she's going to bring life back into that that building, that institution. And I think it, it, it's come to where tribes did not trust the Department of Interior. And uh, with her being in, in that position, and she can bring that trust back into that department. Uh, I've served on other panels uh, so far um, uh, on uh, Zoom. We, where we had several leaders, tribal leaders across the United States, and and um, it was noted that women in some of the uh, tribes are water barriers, and they're protectors of the waters. So uh, I I think not only with water, you know, they they're protector of the lands, they're protector of of 
their society. So I think she brings a lot to the plate, not only as in real life, but um, uh, culturally also she has that cultural significance. But you don't see that on you don't see that on the surface. So we as tribes see that in a, in a different perspective. Her historic confirmation goes beyond beyond sitting in 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 that office and beyond being being the leader. Thinking more about your role, both as a water user and a water protector, when you look at the scientific outlooks that say what we are seeing now this year may be the new normal for the next 10 or 50 or 100 years, do you think that the current system of water rights and usage across the West writ large, can can we get by with added conservation measures or at some point, is there going to have to be a more significant structural overhaul of how water is allocated and used? Well, I think with the, with the drought, it has brought forward tribes in the past when Bureau of Reclamation and, and Interior um, was planning the use of the river. They've left this out. out. They've not thought about us. And, and, um, but yet, you know, in our decrees, in, in our water rights, you know, we've always been there. So I, I look at it in, in that way that, you know, it's bringing tribes to the table, it's bringing them to the forefront now so that we, we do play a key role in water use and that we do have ways to conserve. You know, we do have ideas uh, and, and they're valid because, uh, again, you know, we've been here from time immemorial. So if they would, you know, they would listen to us, um, then we can all work together, you know, collaboration, uh, partnership, stake, you know, being a stakeholder in this, because we all have invested investment in this river because um, we all rely on the river. So it only makes sense that, you know, uh, we, come, we, we come together in a joint effort to um, make changes that need to be made. I, I don't know what those changes are, but, you know, if, if they keep us, the tribes, in, uh, at the table, then I think it would be successful. We can save the river. Chairwoman Amelia Flores of the Colorado River Indian Tribes, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Aaron. You stay safe out there, okay? That is it for this episode of The Landscape. I guarantee we will be talking more about water issues across the West in the coming weeks and months, including that attempt by some anti-government extremists to pick a Bundy-inspired fight along the Klamath River in Oregon. And the other big effect of the drought, of course, the wildfires that are already picking up across the West this summer. If you have ideas for future episodes, please send them our way. You can email podcast at westernpriorities.org or drop me a line on Twitter. I am A. Weiss. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this. That is by far the best way for new listeners to find us or just share this episode with a friend. I'm Aaron Weiss. On behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks again to Chairwoman Amelia Flores and to Haley Paul. And thank you for listening to The Landscape. Keep on beating up.
Wow, those jingles were even worse than I remembered. <laughs>